Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Happy Pentecost. We're going to be looking at the sword of the Spirit today. So, in the armor. I'm going to read in verse 10. Start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that you are the message, the very tone come from heaven to reveal the heart of the Father to us. Help me, Lord, to make much of Jesus right now. And all of us together, Lord, that Jesus would be made much of in our hearts. Save us from the opinions of men and good ideas, clever reasoning, gimmicks, 10-step programs, or whatever it may be, Lord. We want Jesus to be exalted and lifted up because we say together in this place, what we need is you. That you are our chief end. And so, bless this time, bless the churches that gather all over the Central Valley. Thank you for the different churches and their different expressions. Thank you that the family of Jesus is big, 
that your father over so many different personalities and expressions and cultures and races, and we're all part of the same family, and we thank you for that. What a privilege to be a part of this blood-bought family. Man, everything else is just a shadow pointing to the reality that really to her. And so we thank you that you're the substance. Thank you that you came to bring us to the Father. We love you so much, Jesus. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Russell Moore writes in his book, as he was in the car listening to the radio, a program called The Stairway to Heaven. They're talking about slaughtering cows. He said there was something rhythmic, almost soothing about the soft clatter of it. The soothing repetition sounded like a summer thunderstorm coming up from the coast or rickety old midnight train off in the distance. I had no idea what I was listening to. I had no idea that it was the rhythm of cattle marching to a slaughterhouse. It turns out what I had happened upon randomly driving in my car was a public radio program about factory farm. Broadcast was about how to kill cows, but with kindness. Kind of brings new meaning to kill them with kindness. What happened is that there was this scientist that studied for years because when cows get stress or sense stress, it makes the meat tough. So her whole thing was how can we create an environment that they're coddled and that they don't get stressed so that when they're slaughtered, the meat stays tender. Learned through years of research, this researcher, how to register which stimuli produce which animal sounds and how to track what scares or stresses the livestock. A slaughterhouse then, in order to keep the cattle relaxed, should remove anything from the side of the animals that isn't completely familiar. The real problem is novelty. If dairy cattle are used to seeing bright yellow raincoats slung over the gates every day when they enter the milking parlor, there'd be no problem, she counsels this researcher. It's the animal who's seen a bright yellow raincoat slung over the gate for the first time at the slaughter plant or the feed who's going to balk or freak out. If you just keep the cows contented and comfortable, they'll go wherever they're led. She advises, don't surprise them, don't unnerve them, and above all, don't hurt them. Well, at least not until you slit their throats at the end. Along the way, the scientists devised a new technology that has revolutionized the ways of the big slaughter operations. In this system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck, but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp onto a smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cows experience the sensation of going home, the same kind of way they traveled so many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. The conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward and then in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. They're transitioned from livestock to meat, and they're never aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. Yikes. Which is great for barbecue. It's terrible for us. Because what Paul's talking about is that we're in a spiritual battle. And that the enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy, that we face off against this enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against this enemy who wants to see our destruction. The temptation and the reality of the battle that we're in 
is not so much as we talked about last week, the hooga-booga, like spinning heads, levitating bodies, projectile vomit like we see in the Exorcist, or you probably don't see that because you shouldn't watch that. That kind of like, oh my gosh, it's in your face, it's alarming, but it's the subtle shaping you into the mold of the world, getting you to think like the world, becoming invested in the things of the world. You remember that we said that every temptation is rooted in your identity. Every temptation is rooted in an attack on your identity of who you are in Christ as a beloved son and daughter. It is Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent coming and whispering, did God really say? Does God really care? Does God really after your freedom? I thought he said you could have all the trees. He's holding one back from you. He's holding the best back from you, in fact, to get you to doubt his love. It's not so much the it's the slow methodical pressure to conform us into the image of the world instead of the image of Christ. Every temptation at its root is an attack on our identity in Jesus. You will be tempted with consumption, security, and status. You'll be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God cast off his care, to cast off his protection, to cast off his way and his plan and his wisdom for our life. Father led or fed? Father protected or neglected? Father's plan or the way of man? It's a little rhyme scheme to help you guys remember it. The first step in the cycle of temptation is the question of your identity. James told the poor and the beaten down to boast in his exaltation and told the prosperous and the up and coming to glory in his humiliation. Why? James understood that temptation begins with an illusion about self, a skewed vision of who you are. The satanic powers don't care if your illusion is one of personal grandiosity or self-loathing as long as you see your current circumstance rather than the gospel, as the eternal statement of who you are. As long as that is your identifier, great, have at it, if it's not rooted in the gospel. So we'll see in the testing of Jesus, the attack on provision, the attack on protection, and the attack on process. Okay, the three, and we come to this, this is our third in a message about the sword of the spirit. So First, we talked about what it's not, and then we talked about what it is, and now we'll talk about how to use it. So I'm going to catch us up a little bit for those of you who haven't been with us. Just a five-minute recap. Stand firm, Paul writes. Hold the ground that Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won the victory completely, and he wants us to live the victory experientially. We're not trying to achieve victory. Jesus has already won the victory You're not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. It's been done. It's happened. The cross and the resurrection, that is the pinnacle of history, right? So then he comes to the sword of the spirit. He's talking about wearing the armor. And we've seen that each piece of the armor is a different facet of the gospel, right? That we're putting on his righteousness, not a righteousness that we provide, but one that he won for us. And how to deal with discouragement and those kind of attacks, 
But we come to the sword of the Spirit. Take the helmet of salvation, verse 17 of Ephesians 6, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It was called the makara. A small sword is distinguished from a large sword. It's probably used in close quarters battle because, again, I'm going to say it quickly, that when Paul writes this, he's thinking of community. We see this individualistically, like we're out, like William Wallace running in that first scene where he takes the garrison, right, by himself. You're like, wow, this is amazing. Or we think of Samson, who's just throwing. But in his mind, the church is standing together shield to shield, right? That's how the Romans would fight. And so they wouldn't draw their sword if you're shield to shield because it would cut your friend. And so you had the dagger. And then when he's talking about wrestling, he's not talking about a referee being there and assigning you points. He's talking about that fight where you're on the ground and in the mud, that fight. So you've got this blade, double-edged with a super sharp points. This is a spiritual sword and cuts in the spiritual realm. And so often we go to a, the human sword and that's not the sword the spirit uses, right? You remember Peter, he pulls out a sword and Jesus put away, that's not my sword. He says, you'll pull out a sword one day and you'll cut. And he does on the day of Pentecost today. 2,000 years ago, and it's a different sword. It's not a sword from the physical realm. And it says, as they heard him preach about the cross of Jesus, about his death and resurrection, they were cut to the heart. It's a sword that doesn't inflict damage in the physical realm, but man, it cuts you to the heart in the spiritual realm. It liberates, it sets free, it takes the idols down. James 1.20 says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, because we don't believe in the power of this sword. And we know we don't believe in it because we so rarely use it. It is written. It is the one and only in the arsenal, maybe because it's the only one we need. There's not like a lot of weapons. Like we said in Call of Duty, you've got so many options. Right? It's a sword that belongs to the Spirit, but it's put in your hand to use. Now, the word here is rhema, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the rhema. So there's three words used in the Greek for the word of God. The first one is graphe. It's the writings or the written word, okay? The 66 books and words that make them up and compose the canon of Scripture. When Paul is talking about the word of God, he's not talking about walking around with a Bible under your arm. Like this, it's like this weird thing. I've shared, we grew up, in a church where the word of God was like the fourth person of the Trinity, the grapha, the writings, they were this, it was the sacred kind of thing. And it was almost worshiped. There's another word. So you've got the writings, you've got the scripture. The other word is lo the logos, right? In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. Logos is the message of the book, what it's all about. Understanding what the passage says at church, you understand the logos or the meaning. As you hear the gospel and it grips your heart, then you understand the message of the Bible. So it's not just the 66 books compiled. You need that because, but the whole point is to get to the meaning of the book, which is the gospel. And that's where the power is. We see people swear on a Bible in court. If I break this, I'm going to get struck by lightning. It's this like superstitious thing. They're treating the graphi, the, the written, the scripture, like it's this superstitious thing. The person who's putting his hand on the Bible rarely cares about the message in the Bible. But it's like this religious thing. 
that's there. They don't care about the message, they just care about the book in a weird, superstitious way. I talked about how I, when my former pastor would come in when I was a kid, I had highlighted passages of the Bible to make it look like I was a student of the Word. I was a poser thing. My parents were actually underlining, I'm just like, oh, that looks cool, kind of a thing. Uh, The word that he uses is rhema. Utterance or words spoken or declared, it's declaring the message. The declaration of the message that is contained in the written word of God. You need the logos from the graphe, the written word, and then Paul is saying, uttered. It is written. When God, he didn't just think about creating light and go, that would be nice. He declared, let there be light, and it was so. It's interesting because in Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the logos of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The same word for sword in our passage in Ephesians. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's the message, the logos of God is living, not just the book, but the message of the book. It is alive and active. The story about Jesus, the gospel is why he says in Romans 1, it's the power of God unto salvation. That's why Jesus says the volume of the book is about me. That's why the disciples on resurrection day said, did our hearts not burn within us when he explained from the scriptures how he was the fulfillment of all these things. It's the message. It's the message. Why so many sermons are dead or dull is because they miss the message of the graphi or the scripture that it's about Jesus. In fact, Andrew pointed this out last week and I dug into it a little more. And the father, he's talking to the Pharisees in John 5, 37 and 39. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word, his logos abiding in you, the message For you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the graphi, the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I'm the whole point of the scripture. The whole point, the whole power of the Bible is the message about Jesus seeking and saving the lost. It's about Jesus coming to restore what man has broken, to returning us back to home in the creation, right? In the garden of Eden. It's a story about losing a father and being wayward, trying to find family in this broken world and about Jesus coming and to bring us back to the father. Like it's a story about going home. It's the story of Jesus seeking and saving the lost. It's a story about the Father heart of God who gave His Son to have you as sons and daughters forever for eternal life. So why this tangent? Because Jesus says to the devil, it is written. The devil loves to hear us say, I think, or my opinion is, or my friends say, or this is what the latest poll says, Or here's what my political party's stance is. Or this is what the religious leaders say. But Jesus, knowing the message, because the devil's going to quote scripture, but Jesus knows that he's the message. He knows the message of scripture, that it's all pointing to him. 
So really important that as we think, and then we, as Paul says, the sword of the spirit is we're not just, it's not just sitting up here, but that we're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, that we're telling each other the message of the gospel, that we're preaching to our hearts, you know, that as the psalmist says, why are you cast down within me? Like hope in God, what's wrong with you, my soul? You know, hope God, he's preaching at his heart the message, right? And so we really need to understand that. And that's as Paul's framework for the sword of the spirit. So it's not just a random verse, it's knowing the message of what that verse is, right? So often we take something like Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. His delight is on the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He's not going to flee in, but the wicked are not so. They're like chaff driven away by the wind. You come to Psalm and you're like, man, I want to be this man. I want to be the one who's not sitting in the seat of the scornful. I don't want to be the chaff. I want to be the one who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. And then you start to like, wow, but I don't, I'm not delighted in the law of the Lord day and night. I am more like, I do sit, sometimes I'm the scornful and other people are sitting and I'm the one who's scorning everything. I'm like, man, I'm more like the chaff than I am the, the uh. It's because there's a greater hero of every verse and every verse whispers his name. And he is the one who came, who did delight in the law and the Lord day and night. He never did not delight in the law of the Lord day and night. It oozed out of him. On the cross, he just bleeds scripture. And he was treated as the chaff. He was treated as the scornful, as the wicked. And judgment was put on him. He was uprooted so that I could be planted by the rivers of water. So that I could have life. And so even in that verse, there's rescue and it's about Jesus. But then it gives me a picture of what he's shaping me into. That he put his law in my heart. That like he put the Holy Spirit in me who praises the Lord, who loves Jesus, who makes much of Jesus day and night. Like, like all of a sudden there's rescue in that. There's hope in that. There's promise in that. There's reality in that. And there's worship and there's praise through that. So not just the graphite. We need it. It's important. People died for it. Like the canon of scripture, amazing history. But we have to know the message of it. That it's about Jesus, right? That it's about Jesus and his story. So how to use it. So that's just a little, we're coming back. So now we're getting into the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, Matthew 4, 1 to 2, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is a spiritual battle. This is like a battleground, right? It's very interesting. We'll point some things out along the way. But 40 days in the wilderness, very picturesque of the children of Israel going through the wilderness for 40 years wandering, needing to depend on God for everything. So then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So 40 days, 40 nights. I don't know how if you've ever fasted or how long you've fasted. I go like 10 hours, I'm like, I'm going to die. It's a long time. And now 
Doctors say that your body's turning on itself. You need to eat food or you're going to die of starvation. What a wonderful thing that the Son would not only identify us with, by becoming human, but also to submit to temptation for us. We must never lose sight of the context for this wilderness testing. And here's the context of it, because this happens right after this. And this is so important. Luke 3, 21 to 22. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Then in Luke 4, 1-2, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So the whole context of this spiritual battle the whole context that Jesus is going into is you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's it. The attack is going to be on that. It's going to be an attack on his identity that he is a beloved son of God. And so too will our attacks, the spiritual battles, as much as we want to make them about this or this, it all comes down to the fact, am I truly a beloved child of God? Am I truly beloved by him no matter what am i is what he says from heaven or says to us in the person of jesus through the gospel that i'm his beloved son that i'm his beloved daughter because of what jesus did he's well pleased with me is that the truth over my life is that the reality that i live my life in or am i suspicious because of circumstances am i suspicious because of timelines? Am I suspicious because of difficulty? Am I suspicious because the path is hard? Am I suspicious because what he says that he's a shield about me, it feels like I'm getting struck with arrows. Where's the shield? Is that the reality that governs how I see life? Or circumstances, is that govern how I see life? And so that is going to be the point of attack our sonship, our daughtership, our but and not just, oh, I can't stress this enough. Like, not just you're the redheaded stepchild, whatever that means, or the son we don't invite to the gatherings because you're a little crazy, or the kid who has a past and hasn't fixed himself up yet. Like this distance. The message, the logos of the Bible, as replayed over and over as Nathaniel is in my life. I get home, he's like, Dad. And I pick him up, and he bear hugs me. The Holy Spirit says, that's it. In my heart, I don't want anything from him. I don't want him to graduate with honors. That's so far off a thing. What I want is his nearness. And my just rejoices over that little is. He does this thing now where he's trying to kiss you and he just grabs your face and like he's pretty strong and he just churns it and he's just like, and it'll just, he kisses so weird. But you know, you're like, like that is the message. 
It is the prodigal who's afar off and the father runs and he tackles the boy. I heard one commentator say that in that day, to dishonor your father like that, the community could stone you. So as he's walking back, the father's like, "Uh uh-uh, and he's going to dart to him. And he's going to tackle him and hide himself in him. He's going to kiss him and he's going to hug him and he's going to love him. And he's going to feast. And the guy's like, I'm going to fix my life. I swear this time it will be. And he's like, shut up. I don't die. My son was dead and he's alive. You're with me. You're with me. Guys, we come to Christianity to get fixed. Being fixed is a byproduct of nearness. And God isn't ultimately after your fixing. He's after proximity with you. And nearness. Holiness is a byproduct of nearness. He had to make you holy so he could be near to you. But the whole goal wasn't just to have a, oh, there's another holy one, but to have you. To have you. That's it. That's the message. That's the logos. He came to bring us to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him, but through Him. So we can't lose sight. And so the enemy is going to attack you on that. He's going to attack your identity of who you are in Christ. He's going to attack your identity and he's going to assail you with thoughts that maybe God doesn't love you like he loves other people. Maybe you are the one who, maybe you got to go clean yourself up. Maybe you got to head out. Maybe churches have told you you're not good enough. You need to take your baggage and throw it away in the dump. And, like, and it's the enemy God is so faithful at completing the work he began. Man, so often we're like, oh, we got to help God complete the work he began. Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is the height of theology. Abba, Father, Daddy. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So he gives you the Holy Spirit because he knows we don't even believe that. So the Holy Spirit's preaching, Abba, Father. Matthew 7, 9 to 11, of which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? It's so amazing that Jesus says this after his temptation. Because that's the whole temptation. If a son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If he, then you who are evil, comparatively, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Father led or fed, Father protected or neglected, the Father's way or man's way, or the Father's plan or man's way. In Jesus, we overcame temptation the same way he did, by trusting in our Father and hearing his voice over everything in our lives. Some of us may ask, what, what does temptation look like to the spotless son of God? Did he really, was he really tempted? Did he just shoot electricity and deal with the devil that way? Some argue this wasn't hard for Jesus because he was the son of God, but others can argue that the one who faces temptation after temptation and comes out victorious faced it more intensely. As they keep upping the ante, He suffered temptation far worse than anything we have faced. Scripture says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Hard for us to wrap our minds around because in so many places when we're tempted, we fall. But he did not fall and he did not fall 
on your behalf. Like he won victory for you and me. He beat temptation because he knew our frame that it's dust. He knew we would falter and that we would fail, but he succeeded. He won. So Jesus out into the wilderness. The biblical word, in the biblical word, the desert was a dangerous place at its most primal level, dry, fruitless, lonely, untamed. We kind of picture the wilderness he was in as maybe Yosemite, you know? It wasn't, it was like a rock quarry. And there's like three animals that like live in that wilderness. Just a, stones everywhere. Dry, desert, deserted. Lonely, untamed. In a passage many ancient Christians believe spoke of the fall of Satan, Isaiah 14, 16 to 17. The Bible speaks of the enemy as one who shook kingdoms and made the world like a desert. Some of us tend to think of wilderness here as a forest or a woodland. Even when we come to understand that Jesus was sojourning in a desert, we still tend to see it as a vast tract of sand, like a beach with no ocean. But this place, the Judean wilderness, was a craggy field of stone. There were probably rocks as far as Jesus could see, and Satan offered him a way of escape from this rocky exile. Another element why this passage seems strange to us when we read about the temptations, I think, uh, or the testing of Jesus, is his temptations on the surface seem foreign to us. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread or to get up on the temple and jump off of something high. Not a fan of heights. I don't mind them, but although I did jump out of a plane once, which is insane. What is Jesus tempted with and how in any sense is this something that applies to us? So bread. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And here is the attack. If you are his son, you need to eat. If you really are his son, why hasn't he fed you? That's the attack. If you really are his son, who God said from heaven, you're beloved, then why are you hungry right now, Jesus? Why are you literally starving to death? in a lonely place all alone. Where is he? Why isn't he coming through? The first temptation was to doubt God's provision and love in the face of circumstances. Satan often traps us by introducing a small element of doubt, right? Adam in the garden, has God really said? Right? Eve, has God really said you can't eat of all the trees? Satan rarely comes in with a pile of moral crap and say, here, you go wallow in it. He presents it as something beneficial and insightful. Like, hey, you need this. Look at you. You did the 40-day fast. You're amazing. You did the cleanse, you know, kind of a thing. He doesn't say do a 180 and you'll be fine. Look at these temptations. Not a single temptation to commit adultery, cheat on taxes, or lie, or steal, or rob. In fact, on the face of it, it seems reasonable. He has been fasting 40 days. Isn't he supposed to be the one to come and rescue mankind? How's he going to do it if he's not going to survive? At the end, he's weak, he's tired, and he's hungry. He's saying, I'm not suggesting you do something wicked, like create a harem or something. I'm suggesting you feed yourself. Isn't the body the temple of the Holy Spirit? Nothing intrinsically wicked in this temptation. 
so too nowadays our physical and personal discomforts are used against us by the enemy of our souls to make us in the first instance doubt God's love and care for us and to doubt his provision in our lives. And the whole culture is trying to shape us into consumers who are never satisfied. You are a economic unit. They give you social media free, unless you're on Twitter, because what they want is they want to study your spending habits. And then they create products that break after the warranty expires, where you keep perpetually buying. And you know, I was told as an electrician, sometimes we get to work in cool places in the Bay Area. We're working at uh, Intel. And one guy pulled me aside and he's like, see this box right here? And this is back when the Pentium 4 was just released. And oh, I was awesome because I bought it day one, early adopter, and went into debt. Awesome, Andrea loved that. But I had two people at church say, oh, that's cool. He's like, hey, the Pentium 4s just came out. They've got like the 12s right here. I was like, what? He's all, oh yeah, they just stagger it. They've already developed everything. They just get you to keep buying and needing the upgrade and needing the upgrade and needing the upgrade. And so the whole culture is trying to shape us into that mold of needing more and never being satisfied with enough. It's all about that. And he is our representative. You guys will see, and maybe it's hitting you as you hear about the story. The first Adam, he's in a garden paradise, and he's also offered food, right? A food he's not supposed to eat, and he gives in in paradise, right? He's got every tree he can choose from, except for one. And then our second Adam in a wilderness is also offered food that he's not supposed to eat yet, and he has victory. The parallel as our representative, you see, Adam, we all have sin when we're born because our federal head, our representative, the best of us, Adam, right, in perfection or almost perfection, it's not perfect if you can choose evil, but close, chose not good, chose sin. And as our representative brought sin into the world and then we all, it's passed down to us. Our second Adam, our new representative, Jesus, our new federal head, he succeeded where Adam failed, right? Again, it's like God said to Adam, the first Adam, obey me concerning this tree and you'll forever be blessed. And he failed. And we're like, I wouldn't. Oh, I would be way faster. It'd be like, and God said, let there be light. And they'd be like, oh, wow, the fall already happened. It must be Josh. Oh, chapter three already. Crazy. God said to the second Adam, the Garden of Gethsemane. Son, obey me concerning this tree. And you're going to be cursed. You're going to suffer the curse of all mankind. And he obeyed. He said, if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross and he took on our curse so that it would be obliterated in him to rescue us and to bring us back in to the family. And so, yes, there is way more than just Jesus passing the test. He's our representative passing the test for us. Because again, in the gospel, we don't just get a clean slate and now we've got to keep it clean. In the gospel, we get a new record. We get the righteousness of Jesus himself. So when he relates to us, 
He's not like, oh, wow, you didn't do your devotion today. Okay, side hug. He sees the perfection of Jesus over your life, and it's beautiful, and he charges you, and he bear hugs you, and he holds you, and he's like, amazing, perfect, beautiful, because of what Jesus did. That's why it's good news. It would be good and news if we got forgiven and clean slated. That was great for the people in the Old Testament who had to, on the Day of Atonement, a substitute would cover their sins for another year. That's, yes, man, I'm covered. Why we call it good news is because it's not only washed away as far as the East is from the West, but something new is put in its place. This was put in its place a righteousness. And that's how God relates to us. So, yes, he is our representative. So, at the end, he's weak, he's tired, and he's hungry. It's not this crazy, do something wicked. To make us in the first instance doubt God's love and care for us, to doubt his provision, it is relatively easy to trust God when everything is going well. We all know this. Then get four months of chronic pain, or five or ten years, and when someone tells you to curse God and die, you're tempted to do it. Some subtle points. Really, it was a plea to doubt ever so slightly. Jesus will not do anything apart from the express leading of the Father. He says that in the Gospel of John. He says, I only do what my Father tells me to do. Should the Son trust his Father? Should he take independent action to satisfy his needs? And you take a step back into the ancient agrarian world of the Bible. There was no child support. There were no eternities or state welfare offices. A man who would not feed his family was a disgrace to his tribe. This is at the root of Jesus' teaching that even an evil person would not give their child a snake when he asked for a fish or a stone if he asked for a bread, right? We just read that verse. And so there's this sense that like the enemy is saying, why isn't your father coming through? Why isn't he feeding you? This is where Eve fell and Adam right behind her. Satan suggested back in the garden that somehow God was withholding something good from the humans, something that in fact would make them like him. Eve started to see God not as father, but as rival. And that's when she struck out to grab what he was holding back from. Her appetites, Satan said, were more reliable a guide to what she needed than the word of her heavenly father. And man, that is the temptation of the day. Your appetites are a more reliable guide. Your drives are a more reliable guide to what you need in this moment and trusting in a father who loves you without restraint and without limit and is using all his power to bring out his glory in your life and your joy. It's just so, it's that, it's Nathaniel. I just can't get over it. I'm like, he does not understand the plans why I go to work it doesn't like they're so not he's just like you're gone where are you why'd you leave I want to play I want you to hold me I don't get it man that's me Lord like where'd you go even the garden Esau and the birthright it's all through the narrative of scripture right Esau sells his birthright for some porridge some lentil stew right Israel in the wilderness, God providing manna every day. And they look at it and they go, what is it? What's this? And they're like, remember when we had garlic and onions? 
and, and we had meat. We had all this food. Yeah, our firstborn sons were face down in the water drowned. Oh, we forget about that. And just as in Eden, Satan offered Jesus food if you are the Son of God. How will he respond? Will he respond like the children of Israel in the desert, who when they were hungry murmur and complain and assign to God some motive of evil? God brought us out here to die. Isn't that the ultimate, like, not like, hey, he liberated us and he's just not, but we like begin to assign him evil motives. When he's not coming through, we're like, he brought us out here to kill us. The angels are just going like, oy vey. They're just like, what in the world? Are you kidding me? It's insane. He, and he says simply, and I love this because it can't be lost on us. He uses the sword. And he knows the message. Because he knows the graphi, the scripture, right? He uses the sword. He says, it's written. He doesn't do a fantastical display. He doesn't rebuke the wind and the storm. He just says, it's written. And man, this slashes right in the belly. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do some crazy display of power, raise his voice. It is written, it is written, it is written. It cannot be lost on us. If the Son of God used the sword of the Spirit to face off against the enemy, how much more should we? In Acts 23, there's this interesting story where Paul's brought before the high priest. And in Acts 23, 5... The priest says something, and, he, and Paul says, you whitewashed tomb. He, like, loses his temper and calls him out. And, uh, and then somebody points out to him and says, the scriptures say you're not supposed to speak against the Lord's anointed. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He preaches to his heart. He's like, oh, yeah, and the sword cuts him. He responds with that word from God a millennial and a half before. So here's the content of what Jesus says, okay? It's really important. And this is kind of the main one we're chunking at. We're going to move through the other two. But this is, we're, going to, we're spending our time. I'm almost done with this point. But Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So it's the whole manna story. God gave them manna every day, except on the Sabbath, right? And then people would try to hoard it. Even in that, they're like not trusting. God's not going to come through. And it says it was filled with maggots the next day. God provided for them every single day. Give us this day our daily bread as a callback to the manna from heaven. Like every day he's teaching them. You're my beloved sons and daughters. I am a good father. I'm providing every day for you. The whole point is this. What Jesus wanted most was to be father-led rather than fed. He just trusted the Father. He's like, I'm beloved. If I'm not eating right now, that's because he knows what he's doing. Satan didn't propose that Jesus uses power independently, as we commonly assume. Instead, he called on Jesus to direct God to use God's power for Jesus' sake. That is, Satan wanted the Son 
of the Father to make his desires paramount and his communion with God a means to that end. I can't tell you enough how I see in young believers as they're getting, we come to God and we're like, okay, God, you're awesome. You saved me. But here's what I, here's my list. Here's what I want you to do for me. When the whole point of salvation is communion with God. It's the whole point. That's the whole of everything. Everything is an attack on his identity. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the wilderness, in Psalm 63, David had sung a hymn, My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Even in his hunger, though, David saying also, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. God fed David exactly when he needed it. And in the meantime, the Spirit prompted David to see that at the end of the hunger would be a table prepared for him in the presence of his enemies, a feast, right? And so he's like, yes, this is what my drive is going to lead me to, is that you're my true hunger. You're what I need. Like this hunger pain is pointing to me to a greater reality, not just that I need bread. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. We need it. But we also need to live on and trust in the love of God and the Father heart of our God. Recovering a sense of who you are apart from what you want. The world around you often defines you in terms of what you want. The advertising world sees you as a consumer defined by your buying power and your product preferences. Beyond that, other forces would seek to define you by your appetites themselves. If you want to drink, you're a drunk. If you want to have sex, then be true to yourself. And so it goes, but you don't live by bread alone. You are not what you want. You are who God declares you to be. You are not what you want, even though the world tells you. It's a shadow. That's why Jesus said to the woman at the well, she's out by herself because she's full of shame. Doesn't want to hear any of the town gossip. Nobody wants to get near her. Jesus says, I'll share cup of water with you but he says if you knew the water that i had you'd be asking me because the water i have to give once you drink it you'll never thirst again she's like sir tell me where to find this water she's like yes that's what i want and he's using even that thirst to point to the greater reality that ultimately these drives point to that all our satisfaction is found in him ultimately. Jesus heard the voice of his father and believed the words, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Those invisible words were louder for him than a stomach's growl. What will we have to decide is whether we'd rather be fed or fathered. And that's what it comes down to. Let me just move through these and then we'll be done. The temple top, father protected or neglected. Verse 5 and 6, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The second temptation was to doubt God's protection because of the circumstances, and thus doubt his identity as a beloved son. So what does Jesus want here? Quite simply, Jesus the man wanted what every son and daughter wants, to be safe and to be loved. Satan's offer here was one more assault on God's fatherhood and on Jesus's sonship. The people wanted a sign in order to answer a question. Is the Lord among us or not? 
Exodus 17, 7. That's the whole framing of this one. We need a sign. Is the Lord among us or not? So they're wandering in the wilderness. They've just crossed the Red Sea. The question was whether God was right or Pharaoh was right. Whether they were really sons or just slaves after all who had a new owner. The first temptation drives us to the word. The second temptation finds Satan using the word to try to trip Jesus up. Because Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. Whoa. If Jesus says you must live by the word, the enemy says, I can quote the word too. You want to live by the word? I gotcha. Now, this is probably a visionary experience like Ezekiel had, because it would be hard to climb up on the temple. And he's in the wilderness at the end of these things. So he's taken, Paul said, whether I was in heaven or not, I don't know, but it was a thing. So if Jesus says, you must live by the bread, the enemy says, I can use the word too. Again, visionary experiences. It's just as possible that there was this rabbinical story circulating at least a couple centuries later after the Messiah came that said the Messiah, when he came, he would stand on top of the temple and cry out, you poor, your salvation draws nigh, and he would leap down and authenticate himself. So that was this like expectation that the rabbis had of what would happen. Even if that story came later, there are always people at the temple. If Jesus did this sort of thing, it would be wonderfully authenticating right? Could the father let the son die? We see over and over, Jesus is asleep on the boat during the storm, right? Shouldn't Jesus apply the same logic here? There are biblical texts that talk about God's care. This is an attack on the sanity of trust in the timeline of trust. The timeline of trust. Man, that's a hard one. Because when the arrows are coming and they begin to strike and you're like, Where's the deliverance? Where's the armies of the Lord of hosts? We must know not only the method, but we must know the message of the Bible. Jesus said to him again in verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That's, the, that's what he's quoting right there. Massa was the place where they got water from the rock. You remember, they're like, we're going to die of thirst. God brought us out here to die. He brought us out here to kill us. We just were so thirsty. Like they had just seen miracle after miracle after miracle, his protection. They that literally could look back off of the, to see the bobbing bodies in the Red Sea of the Egyptian soldiers. But they're like, we're going to die. We're doomed. Exodus 7, 17, 7. And he called the name of the place Meribah. Masa Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of the Lord and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So again, Jesus knows the message. The enemy's saying, look at, you're in the wilderness. 40 days, you're starving. Okay, so you're not going to turn, you're not going to feed yourself. But where's the Father's protection over you? Doesn't he care about you more than the birds of the air? Doesn't he... Doesn't he clothe you? Doesn't he feed you? Like, like, isn't he going to come through? Don't, shouldn't you make sure, like, God's there? And Jesus knows the story. He knows the message. And the Lord among us are not. And he's like, oh, he's among us. And I'm going to lean into him. That can be so hard in trial. 
Is he among us or not? The people, this demand for protection was a sign of unbelief. The people didn't trust God on the basis of his word to protect them and deliver them from their enemies. They wanted some visible manifestation, something that would prove that God was a father after all. What's fascinating is that God is a good father and he's super gracious and he does give them water out of a rock. And they're in a similar situation years later and they still doubt like we do. Like water out of a rock. At Massa, the sign they wanted was a stream of water, but it would later be other things. Again, over is the Lord among us or not. Also, do you note that Satan uses scripture and things can be taken out of context and twisted? People who, you know, use it, we all know husbands who tell wives they have to submit and they're just a bully in the home. They always forget husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What does that mean? Oh, he died for her. Like, bled. Like, you know. And so all these things people can twist to accomplish their own things. Second temptation, father protected or neglected. And finally, verse 8 and 9, the father's plan or the way of man. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. He's like desperate. He's like, okay, I'm going to cut to the chase. I, you know, the bread, the, the jumping, that was crazy that I think about it. But will you just worship me, please? The third attack was an explicit temptation to break the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. One form of the end justifies the mean. Satan isn't being subtle anymore. Bread is not inherently evil. Jesus has done great things to display his greatness, raising the dead, quieting the storm, right? Or he's going to do that. Satan, whatever he knows, he knows that Jesus is slated to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says, here is a cross-free way to the world that you've come to rescue. Here's a shortcut. You can have the crown without the cross. You just got to worship. I'll give you it. I'll give it to you. You can have it. I'm tired of these people. <laughs> the crown without the cross. It is vital to remember that the devil cannot give you what he promises. He doesn't have the right and in the end you'll lose your soul. Like, it's all, he's terrible. Read the fine print. How the enemy covers up all the consequences, right? Does that ever happen? Like, like the thing temptation does that he does with temptation is he just distracts you from the future. He tries to make temptation now. What your need now is prominent. Your drive now. This needs to be fulfilled. One guy said, like, but don't you worry about your eternal soul? It's like, God has to forgive me. It's his job. This like, wait, what? No idea of like costly grace or anything. Just this hard heartedness to God. But here, right? He says, here's the cross free way. And the enemy so often he covers up the consequences. But then when you're caught, man, he loves to expose it and shout to everybody like, did you see what he did? And you feel the weight of it. And then he tries to throw condemnation on it. It's, he's a terrible enemy. Verse 10 to 11, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, or get thee behind me, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Guess what? 
One of the gospels says he left Jesus and came back for a more opportune time. You know what it was? Jesus is asking them, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has given you in in that insight. And then he begins to explain the cross and that he's going to go to the cross. And Peter pulls him aside and he's like, we got to stop the cross talk. (laughs) We like the glory. We like the revelation. We like this. Don't, no, 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 not the cross. You don't need to go to the cross. And what does he say? The exact same thing. Get thee behind me, Satan. He says, that is the way of Satan. Is a path forward without a cross. What did Jesus say? If you want to be my disciples, take up your cross, do yourselves, and follow me. Guys, you will experience suffering. It's not the way it was meant to be, but God is redeeming and restoring. But there is no shortcut in following Jesus. Like following him entails suffering. God hates suffering. That's why one of the reasons he came is to end it. And finally it will be ended. Death will be laid in its grave. Sickness and disease pain, all that betrayal, emotional, like toxic, all that stuff is going to be gone one day. But what he does right now through the suffering is he only allows it to accomplish the exact opposite of what it's trying to accomplish. The enemy came to God. God said, hey, have you seen my servant Job? I'm like, good. Don't point me out ever. No, because the enemy's like, oh, he only worships you because you allow good in his life. He doesn't suffer. If he suffered, then he would curse you. The only reason is because you bless him. That's it. And God says, you can do this and this, but you can't do this. He only allows Satan to do in Job's life the exact opposite of what Satan was trying to do. Because what happens to Job is that he says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him, that you are my true treasure. Cover me with boils. Let me shave them off with shards of pottery and the dust of the earth, and yet you are my God. I will worship you. And then he comes to know God through that. His pride is revealed. What's removed from Job is not his faith and trust, but his pride. And so... Again, the greatest defeat against evil and suffering is to make it the servant of your joy. Isn't that triumphing? Isn't that, you know, when in Colossians it says Jesus is like triumphing over the enemy, like he stomps him on the feet, like he, he makes him like servile in a footstool. He's making a public display over the enemy. Isn't that the public display that evil comes in and tries to, suffering comes in, it's like, oh, you're going to hate this. And you're like, actually, I love him more. It's like, ah! It's the ultimate defeat. The only suffering that could really destroy you was standing up to God's judgment on that final day. That's the only thing that could take you out. That's the only thing that would forever separate you from him, but Jesus came to take the ultimate suffering so that now any suffering that we experience serves our joy and his glory. Again, he's ultimately coming to defeat that 
evil and that suffering, but it's so easy to want the shortcut. And we live in a day and an age where we can buy our way out of suffering. The credit card, we can, we, Amazon, yes. We can get out of it. And I'm not saying that we, like, we're masochists and we just go into, like, I'm not like, bring it on, God. We should hate suffering like God hates suffering. That God, when he stood at Lazarus' tomb and he saw what death did, he snorts, he grunts like a horse, he's drawn a line in the sand, he says, death, you're done. I'm coming for you. He does, he just squares off against it. He weeps at the devastation. He hates it. He hates what it does to his creation. He hates it, and he's going to end it. And that's one of the reasons that he went to the cross. So we hate it. But if that arrow is going through the shield and pierces your heart, guys, the sovereignty of God says that it's an arrow he's ordained for you and him. Jesus says, worship God only. My Father's word is the most important. The relationship, the communion I have is the most important with the Father. So often we're tempted to take the easy way. I may not be tempted to worship at Satan's feet, but often a price tag is revealed that I would give up at the cross and take a shortcut if the price was right. Paul writes like many have left because of the love of the world. Like they're captivated by the riches. Jesus provides a model of how we deal with temptation, right? It is written, how to withstand it. But that's not all he is. He's more than our model. We think of the first temptation, Adam in the garden and Jesus in the wilderness. The first Adam had plenty of beauty. He had a companion with him, a wife. The second Adam was in an ugly desert and stark ugliness. The first Adam sinned and brought about our downfall. The second Adam prevailed and brought about our release. The first man, Adam, in a perfect environment, believed Satan's lies, prioritized the gifts of God above God himself, doubted the goodness of God, and compromised God's laws in pursuit of a good thing. Jesus, the second Adam, by contrast, rejects Satan's lies, not in the Garden of Eden, where all his needs have been met, but in the wilderness, where he is hungry. He prioritizes fellowship with the Father above all. How? Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, for the word of God is living and active, the logos, sharper than any two-edged sword, our word, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's victorious. Let us then with confidence, boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, nearness, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need, in your time of need, we so often think, I need my circumstances fixed. He says right here, mercy and grace is your rescue. The story of grace is your rescue. Like that's what you need in those moments. Our Jesus knows what temptation looks like, not just with the knowledge or omniscience, but with the knowledge of experience. He knows our frame. He's a high priest who's compassionate. He knows the struggle. He knows our frame. 
he did step off the edge of the cliff into the abyss of darkness, and the angels did not bear him up, and the Father did not catch him. He dashed his foot against the stone. His heel was bruised, his body broken and crushed. The high priest who should be doing the cutting became the sacrifice and was cut with the sword of judgment, justice, and wrath. So that now when the sword comes into our heart, it brings life where there was death. The sword of justice went into the heart of Almighty Jesus, and He bore it, and He suffered, and He paid the price that we should have paid. All that we did wrong, He did right. So when He, when it, so when he came to die, He could bear our condemnation because a perfect life that ended under the condemnation of death could free those under the condemnation of death and restore them to everlasting life. The tree of life, we get to eat of the tree of life. And what it does is assure us to our place with the Father, which gives us the strength to overcome the temptation of Satan. And even more, He united Himself to us by His Spirit, which means that the same one who overcame these temptations for me can now overcome them through me. Jesus, God's own Son, came to earth to substitute Himself for you, which secures your place before the Father, because He paid your sin debt entirely. And it assures you of God's steadfast love for you, the Father heart of God, that He would go through all of this for you. And so we can trust that He'll be consistent and present and a Father in our life. There's something specific about the Word of God that Jesus recalls every time. Something that undergirds every quotes. Something so powerful that not even Satan can refute it. His identity in the Father's eyes. Satan says before the temptation, if you are the Son of God, Everything Jesus quotes ultimately goes back to the security he possesses in who he is in God's eyes. And that's where the power comes from. He knew who he was. He knew his identity. This is our main temptation, the root of all temptations, to establish our identity on something other than God's declaration over you in Christ. Satan wants us to base our identity on how we live, but God wants you to base your identity on how he lived for you. He really loves you. Jesus took care of every barrier, every obstacle, every distance. We're beset by temptation and we fail. He took care of it for you. We're overwhelmed by suffering. He was overwhelmed by the ultimate suffering so that now what Satan means for evil in your life, God works for good and we know and we know that all things work together for the good to those who loved him and are the called according to his purposes he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also freely give us all things like like he loves you and he says over you you are my beloved son and daughter in whom i'm well pleased i will never leave you i will never forsake he's for you and if God be for us, who can be against us? Like that is, again, it's our identity and what Jesus has done and standing in that is the victory that overcomes the world. That is, that's the power of the gospel. That's the message of the Logos that he came to seek and save the lost and bring us back to the Father. So we pray for us, Lord, we thank you for your word. We remember that you did fall off the cliff that you leapt into the abyss, that you stared into that cup, 
as you comprehended what it would be like to drink. All the wrong of humanity. Every shape and form of the curse. And that for our sakes, you were broken so that we could become whole. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the messages is that in that moment, in some mysterious way, you lost your father so we could gain a father. And we say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have defeated the enemy. Thank you that your victory is our victory. Thank you that you won. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you keep preaching that message to our hearts, that message of sonship and daughtership, that message of being your beloved, of being the adored ones, of being your favorite. It's an amazing thing that the infinite God can have. I could be his favorite because you don't divide your love amongst us. We have your face. We have your gaze. We have your word over us. We have your attention. We have your song. We have your celebration. We have your dancing and rejoicing. Where can I go? If I would ascend into the highest heavens, you're there. If I descend into Sheol itself, you're there with me. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you would visit him? Mindful. May that word just fall on us. That we have your face. Thank you, Lord. We can't wait to feast with you. We can't wait for the marriage supper of the lamb. We can't wait for these taste buds to be set on fire. But in the meantime, we feast on your body broken and your bloodshed. Because really, that's the food we needed. Because we could feast in this life, and we could lose our souls. But because you were broken, now we're fed. Now we're whole. Now we're sustained. And we declare as your people, we're satisfied. We praise you, Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen.